is this SOB? Yeah, like who does he think he is? My thought exactly. Who is this SOB? Who is this SOB? This is Steve Noble, conservative, Bible-thumping, Southern Baptist syndicated talk radio show host. And am I the SOB? I certainly have been guilty of that in terms of how I've interacted with people I don't agree with, including my own family, and perhaps people like you. So whether you're liberal or conservative, gay or straight, black or white, a Christian, an atheist, or a follower of some other faith, I hope I won't be quite the SOB you might expect me to be. Only time will tell. On today's episode, a new series has rocketed to the top of the charts with a very provocative title, Nice White Parents. Cute, huh? But also a very worthwhile subject, our failing public education system. Hey, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends and be sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Who Is This SOB? Or check out the website at whoisthissob.com. Okay, let's dive into Nice White Parents. Right from the New York Times website, from Serial and the New York Times, Nice White Parents looks at the 60-year relationship between white parents and the public school down the block. We know American public schools do not guarantee each child an equal education. Two decades of school reform initiatives have not changed that. But when Hannah Joff Walt, a reporter, looked at inequality in education, I think I'm saying that right, by the way, she saw that most reform focused on who schools were failing, black and brown kids. But what about who the schools are serving? In this five-part series, she turns her attention to what is arguably the most powerful force in our schools, white parents. See, I told you it's provocative. Very provocative concept, provocative title from the New York Times, so that's not a shock. But like I said, a very worthwhile subject. So let's dive into the introduction of Nice White Parents. I don't think I've ever felt my own consumer power more viscerally than I did shopping for a public school as a white parent. We were entering schools that people like us had ignored for decades. They were not our places, but we were being invited to make them ours. The whole thing was made so much more awkward by the fact that nobody on those tours ever acknowledged the obvious racial difference, that roughly 100% of the parents in this group did not match, say, 90% of the kids in this building. I knew the schools were segregated. I shouldn't have been surprised. By the time I was touring schools as a parent, I'd spent a fair amount of time in schools as a reporter. I'd done stories on the stark inequality in public education, and I'd looked at some of the many programs and reforms we've tried to fix our schools. So many ideas. We've tried standardized tests and charter schools. We've tried smaller classes, longer school days, stricter discipline, looser discipline, tracking, differentiation. We've decided the problem is teachers, The problem is parents. What is true about almost all of these reforms is that when we look for what's broken, for how our schools are failing, we focus on who they're failing. Poor kids, black kids, and brown kids. We ask, why aren't they performing better? Why aren't they achieving more? Those are not the right questions. There is a powerful force that is shaping our public schools, arguably the most powerful force, It's there even when we pretend not to notice it, like on that school tour. If you want to understand why our schools aren't better, that's where you have to look. You have to look at white parents. From Serial Productions, I'm Hannah Jaffe-Waltz. This is Nice White Parents, a series about the 60-year relationship between white parents and the public school down the block. 
Okay, so maybe you find this controversial, maybe you don't, but the, you know, her premise basically is that the main problem, the main cause behind our school problems, and not just the one school in Brooklyn that she's going to focus on, as well as kind of the New York school system in general. But obviously, she's talking about a much wider spectrum. I think she's talking about pretty much the entire country, all the public school system. And the main problem behind it all is white parents. And uh, she softens that a little with nice white parents, but it's a pretty uh, major charge. Now, could it be an issue? Yes. And I think that she did a good job throughout the series of unfolding that. And if you listen to the whole thing, and I would strongly suggest that you do, I think you'll find that. You can say, okay, all right, there's definitely some problems here. But that's the main cause, that white parents are the main cause of the problems in the public school system, which to me at first seemed like a gross oversimplification. An issue, like I said, yes. But the main problem, like everything boils down to white parents. And given the backdrop of where we're at right now with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and the protests and everything, I have to question a little bit because I'm a cynic about the timing of all of this. In today's environment, is this really healthy to come out with a series, the New York Times, about white parents being the cause of pretty much all of our public education problems. Is this really good timing? Is it healthy? And just as important, perhaps more important, is it true? And so she will, uh, she'll go down this road in all these episodes. And in the intro, uh, episode one really focuses on School for International Studies, SIS, which is in a mostly minority area of Brooklyn. Uh, the school was suffering. And so the question is, could nice white parents save it since we're the cause of downfall, I guess? When we sweep in on our white horse, can we then turn around a school and save it? A fascinating story, a lot to learn from. So let's uh, let's check this out as she t- introduces us to the principal of the School for International Studies, and we get a feel for what's going on there. In 2015, the students at SIS were Black, Latino, and Middle Eastern kids, mostly from working class and poor families. That year, like the year before and the year before that, the school was shrinking. The principal, Jillian Juman, was worried. Yeah, so um, the last two years, we had uh, 30 students in our sixth grade class. And so we really have room for 100. Ms. Juman started to reach out to families from the neighborhood, inviting them to please come take a look. Parents started showing up for tours of SIS, mostly groups of white parents. Ms. Juman was thrilled and relieved. She walked parents through the building, saying, stop me anytime if anyone has any questions, really anything, I want you to feel comfortable. And Ms. Juman says they did have questions, mostly about the poor test scores. That was fair. Ms. Juman expected those questions. She did not expect the other set of questions. She got a lot from parents. Is there weapons? Is there, you know, are you scanning? Are you a scanning school because kids are dangerous and they have weapons? I've heard that there's... Scanning like metal detectors. Right. I heard there's fights and, you know, those kinds of things. I don't, I don't know what school you're talking about. I have never heard of that incident ever happening, ever. So the fears of what this building is and what this building has represented um, has kind of transcended itself. We only, we t- there's a different story of international studies outside this building. How much of that do you think is racism? I think... Our entire society is fearful of the unknown. Okay, so welcome to SIS and the principal who, uh, you know, I, I think as you meet these different, the cast of characters, the different people playing here and the principals and teachers and parents and stuff, 
I think just about all these people are well-meaning. I think the principal is well-meaning. And uh, as you hear this story, that school was really in bad shape, down to 30 kids in that particular grade and sixth grade. And the fewer kids you have, the fewer money you get. So the school's facing closure, which is sad. And it's in a tough neighborhood in a, uh, in a diverse, mostly minority neighborhood. And obviously it's suffering. And so when the white parents come in and check it out, uh, I mean, that... I try not to read too much into that. I think I would have, honestly, I would have that question. If I'm looking at a school for my kids and I'm white and it's in a neighborhood that's mostly minority, will I assume probably there's some trouble there? Yeah, I would assume that. Does that mean I'm a racist? I guess I'll leave that up to you. I don't think I'm a racist. Uh, maybe I'm insensitive from time to time and, and don't see things the way I should, but I don't. I definitely don't think like overt racism. It's just not my modus operandi, especially as a as a, follower of Jesus Christ. But I think that's a legitimate question when you're in a tough neighborhood or in part of town that is minority driven. And maybe that's just wrong. Maybe maybe no parent should ask that question about metal detectors and are there fights and maybe they're hearing things from other schools and they assume because most of the school is minority, that's just the way they are. And I think there's a lesson to be learned for us there. There's a lesson to be learned for me for sure. It's just because you got a bunch of minority people there in an inner city school, does that necessarily mean by definition that it's got uh, problems? And you need metal detectors and police and all the other stuff. I'd like to think it doesn't mean that, but we know there's plenty of cases where it does and where it has meant that. So, you know, you got to be careful with making assumptions both ways there on that one. And then asking the question, the, the host of the show asking the question, you know, do you think that was racism? And then the principal being very careful with the way that she answers but really laying out the premise again is there that behind all of this, behind all our problems, are uh, the bad guy ov overall is the white parent, white parents. And so you're going to meet a guy next, Rob Hansen, who seems like a decent, capable guy. He's a fundraiser and he gets a bunch of other of his other white friends to look at the school, but nobody wants to go in there by themselves. So Mayman, if we come in and we can raise money and we can start a French program, they kind of end up taking it over. And that's uh, most of what the first episode is about. But again, setting up the bad guy as these white parents who come in and the school system just kind of bows down and does whatever they want. So let's check out uh, this next section and meet Mr. Rob Hansen. Someone said, have you guys heard of SIS, that building down the block? Rob hadn't. The others hadn't. They decided to all go check it out together. I walked away and lots of parents walked away from those tours thinking, oh, wow, you know, People are jamming up into some schools, and and you're you're leaving sixty or seventy seats empty, empty all year long. You have thirty kids. It doesn't. That's you, you spread them out around, it, and that's a big school. Then all of a sudden, you're sort of like, wait a second, what's? There's nobody here. As Rob toured SAS, he had an idea. That night, he emailed Principal Juman, and he asked, would she be open to starting a dual language French program at SAS? Sure. Principal Juman was open. So Rob started spreading the word. SIS is starting a dual-language French program. We should all go. Rob says there was interest, but a lot of people he talked to had this question. Wait, are other people going? And then families have that kind of fear. Like, what if I'm, you know, what if I look around and nobody else came with me? And, um, and I came for something that's not here because nobody... So it's a collective action problem. Wait, why is a collective act... Why, why do you need a collective... Uh, just on the, just on, I think overall there's a collective action issue, um, but if you're interested in this in part because of the French dual language part of it, um, if, if you're the only one to show up, 
There's no French teacher for one student. But there's a program if 15 come, if 20 come. But we all have to then take one step forward at exactly the same time. The vision requires people to come. And what if nobody comes? So sounds like a decent guy, right? He's just, uh, he's a concerned parent. He's thinking about going there, but doesn't want to go there by himself. There's probably a story behind that. That might not be so flattering. But uh, hey, let's, what about a French program? Which was kind of bizarre that all of a sudden they wanted to do a French program. It turned into a major French program at this school. So he comes in, he gets a bunch of other people. He's capable, very successful. So they're, they're going to be movers and shakers. And I can just imagine the principal who's all of a sudden happy because they brought all kinds of people in, which is going to save the school financially, right? Because more students equals more money coming in. But then they just kind of take over. So so um, the rest of this first episode kind of spins this tale of things just turn into a mess. You get these uh, nice white parents, a lot of them coming in. Uh, they're exercising influence. The principal allows it, which is a big part of this whole series, is leadership. What's, like, who's in charge? That's what I kept thinking as I was listening to this because... These nice white parents come in, they're people of means, they're influencers, they start raising money and they're not giving the money to the PTA and the principal all along is, I'm sitting there thinking, where's the principal? Why, why isn't anybody stepping in here? And by the way, one of the things about this whole series, talking about nice white parents in, in New York and Brooklyn, that's heavily democratic. So should we go political there? Should it matter that most of these nice white parents are Democrats? I think when it comes to education, party matters because we assume that the Democrat Party is the party for education. But a lot of these parents that she talks about in the series are in New York and odds are pretty good that they're going to be liberal Democrats, not conservative Republicans. So just a little interesting thing on the side. So the PTA has a problem with them. Then they end up doing, it's crazy, this tiny little school in a minority neighborhood, they end up doing, because of who's involved now, these white parents, they do this big New York City gala at a mansion to raise money for the new French program. They work with the with the French embassy. It's crazy. And all these other parents are like, what's going on here? So these white parents, successful, moneyed people, probably liberal, come in just because it's New York, and they come in and they basically take over and turn the school. They totally change the school. Sounds like in about a year. So it's just crazy to listen to all that. But then listen how... Uh, Hannah wraps up this this episode one of the series, and I'm not going to dig this much into the rest of the episodes. We'll we'll be a little more general after this, but this is a really important way that she wraps it up because it really shows you again the premise, which I'm struggling with. I think it's partially true, but it's not entire. It can't be entirely true that nice white parents are the reason behind all of our public schools' failures. Uh, it's way too simplistic, and given the environment in right now, it seems a little kind of. Uh, politically driven, maybe? I don't know, but check it out. Check out the way she ends this first episode. I looked into the history of this school, and I learned that this wasn't the first time white parents showed up here. White parents have been involved all along, all the way back to the very beginning of this school, half a century ago, doing the same kinds of things I'd just seen. It happens again and again. White parents wielding their power without even noticing. Like a guy wandering through a crowded store with a huge backpack, knocking things over every time he turns. So, yeah, you know, all white parents are now like the guy with the big backpack walking through the store, knocking over things inadvertently every time he turns. And so white parents coming into the schools, getting involved with the schools, just kind of run over everybody and mess the whole thing up. 
and and that's just kind of the the theme that runs throughout this entire series. Again, I've listened to the first four plus the introduction. I listened I listened to the very first hour long one, which led to the series, which was on um, in another New York Times series, and it's just so general and so widespread the application of nice white parents ruining everything and and don't even know they're ruining things, just come in there and kind of do their thing and mess everything up. So again, I think especially right now in this context that we're living in, that these gross generalizations, whether it's coming from the left or the right, talking about white people, black people, rich people, poor people, I just think that's, that's so unhealthy. It's the norm now, right? That's just normal. But is it, is it good? Is it right? Is it healthy? It isn't. And that's, that's where I, I really am, in many ways, I like this series. It's beautifully done, obviously well-produced, really interesting, uh, some powerful stories, some sad stories. But then to go move into this massive gross generalization that the main problem with schools across America is white parents, I don't think it's healthy. I think it can be, it's definitely partially true. But is it entirely true? So in this next clip, uh, she talks about more white kids coming in at IS-293, which is the school that's mostly the subject of this series. So check it out. But the biggest change between the era of being ignored and punished and the era of being celebrated and oversubscribed is that white kids arrived. That's what's different. Nine times as many white students. IS-293 was a mostly segregated school for decades. And still... It was subject to the whims of white parents. Nice white parents shape public schools even in our absence because public schools are maniacally loyal to white families, even when that loyalty is rarely returned back to the public schools. Just the very idea of us, the threat of our displeasure, warps the whole system. So separate is still not equal because the power sits with white parents no matter where we are in the system. I think the only way you equalize schools is by recognizing this fact and trying wherever possible to suppress the power of white parents. Since no one's forcing us to give up power, we white parents are going to have to do it voluntarily. Which, yeah, how's that going to happen? Wow. Okay, so I'm trying not to take offense to all of this. I'm sure uh, if you're a conservative listening to this, you're going, this girl is so wrapped up in her white guilt and and feeling bad about her white privilege. And and just to go back over some things she said, uh, the school system uh, is, quote, maniacally loyal to white families. The very idea of us that scares them, the threat of our displeasure warps the whole system. Try wherever possible to suppress the power of white parents. Now, I've, I've listened to this a couple of times now, and I'm just like, uh, where's that coming from? And that's so, I think it's so over the top. You, you might agree with all and go, yeah, 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 she's making great points. But could that really be true that all school systems, because let's, let's think of it this way. Do you think every school in the country is in bad shape? And do you think every school that's predominantly white is in good shape? Because there's all kinds of schools that are failing that have mostly white students. If you go out into rural areas, Appalachia, uh, some suburban areas, some areas, parts of town, which are still uh, a lot of white folks, but are depressed economically. And I think educationally, a lot of this has to do with socioeconomic status and people that can come in and have a lot of money, therefore have a lot of influence. And that's not so much about their skin, even though you've got more white people with money than black people, but money's a big deal. 
But again, maniacally loyal to white families, the very idea of us can things can move things around, the threat of our displeasure. And I think this makes a lot of school administrators and principals and school board members sound like they're just a bunch of wimps getting pushed around by white people with smiles on their faces. And I just don't think that's the truth. So again, I, I think the the overwhelming generalization here is really, really unhealthy. And there's no way it's completely true. Again, I'm not saying it's not partially true. Of course it is. But is that really the number one thing behind school failures around the country, public schools, are white parents that just come over and coming in and knock stuff over like they're wearing a big backpack in a store and don't even know what they're kind of trouble they're causing? It's just really kind of troubling to me. And you may agree, you may think it's she's hitting the, the, the ball out of the park, but I think this is the kind of gross generalization that's tearing the country apart right now. I don't think it's helping. So in this next clip, uh, she talks about, uh, this is kind of weird, Success Academy, which actually they set it up in the exact same building as this regular school down in the basement. So Success Academy, which is like Stepford Wives kind of stuff going on, really kind of crazy, but it was diverse. It was not segregated and they had a lot of success with test scores and grades and stuff. Really fascinating. Uh, that she goes to this one. But some other stuff there to talk about, so let's check it out. If your measure of success in school is standardized tests, and at Success Academy, it is, this is one of the best schools in the city. The scores are truly remarkable. Success Academy students perform twice as well on state tests as regular New York City public school kids. The vast majority of success kids pass the tests, 95, 97%. In your average city public schools, it's less than half. And even more impressive, to me at least, is that kids at Success are doing well on tests no matter if they're poor or rich or Black or Latino or Asian or white. This is the problem that decades of public education reforms have tried to address, the achievement gap. Success Academy was pulling off not only an integrated school, but an equal integrated school, that was closing the achievement gap. Okay, so now we have Success Academy, which is really rigorous. You know, these are charter schools, so they're run differently than a regular public school. Their funding is different. They run much more like a for-profit operation. But they come in and standardize everything. They have a mixed group. They have a lot of minorities in there, and uh, plus white kids. And all of a sudden they're getting results. So it begs the question, and we'll get to this in a little bit with the podcast, is what, what's, what's our main goal here with our public schools? Do we want our kids educated and performing well and getting good grades and doing well in their standardized testing so that they have an opportunity maybe to even get a scholarship or go to community college, something? And this school is doing it. They're getting it done. Now it's a little creepy the way they do it. You'll hear that in a second. But all of a sudden... The white parents aren't the ones involved, but there's still white people involved, and you'll hear that next. But what's so wrong with this place if they're getting that result? They're getting good grades. They're uh, shrinking the achievement gap, meaning the white kids who are achieving way better than the kids, people of color, all of a sudden that gap is shrinking. So the people of color, the black kids, Hispanic kids, whatever, are doing better. Isn't that what we want? But apparently that's not quite the goal here. So let's listen to some more. The way success achieves equality, though, some things give me pause. What's my first expectation? Lock your hands shut, Kamira. Your first ex expectation is read twice. Last year, I went into the success classrooms. Send Kamira some love. Give Kamira two claps. <laughs> my second expectation is that 
I didn't see any teachers reprimanding kids or ripping up work like the one in the video. What I did see were teachers who issued a constant wall of verbal directions. Where to look, what to do, how to sit, delivered in the same consistent, neutral tone. When a teacher calls on someone, she gives a direction to the class to track the speaker, look at the person speaking. Meanwhile, a second teacher roams and hovers, issuing reminders. Lock your hands, track Shayna. Liam's hands are locked tracking. Shayna, Leah's hands are locked tracking. Shayna, Cole's hands are locked tracking. Shayna answers correctly. Nice job, Shayna. Nice job, Shayna. Scanning for another friend on the carpet who looks so professional. Lock your hands, track Zoe. Success achieves equality, at least in part, through utter uniformity. Every success academy across the city uses identical methods, identical curricula, and identical classrooms. The kids sit on the same polka dot carpet, Hands locked in their lap, same signs on the wall, sing the same chants. Even the teachers look the same. They're almost all young white women in cotton dresses and ballet flats just out of college. All right. What did I tell you? A little creepy, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, looking for somebody else that looks professional down here on the carpet. Oh, your turn. And then they all clap at the same time. They say the same things. (laughs) Like I said, Stepford wives, right? They're all kind of programmed and acting the same, but very, very strict. But they have high standards. So you have a lot of these kids that are in that uh, depressed neighborhood, that um, economically depressed area of Brooklyn. And a lot of people would think, well, they just can't achieve. But then you get like these young white girls in flats and a standardized system that's really strict. And the next thing you know, the achievement gap is going away. And they're doing better with their grades and their standardized testing. So again, it begs that question. Isn't that what we're after? Don't we want our public school system to help our kids get smarter, more educated? Or is there something else? So I was questioning, other than the fact that it's kind of creepy, what's wrong with them uh, having that kind of standard and and pushing excellence and they're able to get the achievement gap to get smaller, which most people talk about, most people want, whether you're a liberal or a, or a conservative. We want to, hey, we want to see more minority kids doing better. And we see more Caucasian kids, a lot of them doing just fine. Not all of them, obviously. And not every school with mostly white kids is doing great. But we want to see that uh, success gap shrink, and we want to see our minority children doing better. So they were doing that, but apparently, at least according to the host of this podcast, maybe that's not the main goal. Maybe there's another goal. Maybe it's more along the lines of equality or equity or racism. So let's look at that next chapter here. It's September 2019. I'm back at SIS. It's been four years since the French gala and the drama with the PTA. Rob, the dad who fundraises, he's not here anymore. His son finished middle school. And a new crop of sixth graders and their families are settling into the auditorium. The school is no longer called SIS, the School for International Studies. It's now BHS, the Borum Hill School for International Studies. They changed the name again. BHS has a new principal, Nicole Lanzalato. She gets up on stage and the staff cheers. Ms. Lanzalato welcomes the new families to BHS. Any school is a microcosm of the world. And we are blessed with beautiful diversity. Ms. Lanzalato lists the ways the school reflects the world. Race, ethnicity, language, gender. We are extraordinarily diverse community and it's a beautiful thing and we fight for it and we work on it. Ms. Lanzalato says BHS is going for true equity, 
She says the word equity three times in this welcome speech. The year white families arrived at SAS, Ms. Lanzalotta was the assistant principal. She won't say anything bad about that year. It was a learning experience. It's a process. Her predecessor, Ms. Juman, talks about it the same way. Remember, principals, diplomatic. They're careful not to place blame. But both of them said after that year, it was clear they needed to intervene. Okay, so there's one of my major points in this whole thing. The All of a sudden, Ms. Anzalato and the other former principal decided after a year of that whole French craziness, that it was time to intervene. That was a management decision. And instead of letting these, I think probably mostly well-meaning, nice white parents run the show and and wield too much influence, they stepped in, which is what I was thinking the whole time I was listening to episode one. I'm like, why are the principal, why is the principal and the leadership in the school letting these parents get away with just kind of doing whatever they wanted to do? So again, is is it because there's nice white parents involved? Or maybe because the leadership isn't strong or we've got some problems in the school system. Like I said, I think the point that she's trying to make in this whole series is that the main problem is nice white parents yielding too much influence. The system gives itself over to them. But in this case, the very same school that she's been talking about the whole time sees a significant turnaround because the leadership changed and you got a really good, strong leader that came in. And they hired more uh, minority teachers and they they said, hey, we want to reserve 40% of our seats for kids that use free and reduced lunch. So they're making sure to keep that diversity and representing the minority area that they were in. That's good leadership. That wasn't the lack of white parents. That was the addition of good leadership. And I think for the host to leave that out uh, kind of shows you that there's a little too much of an agenda here that I think is uh, driven by I don't know. Is it is it white guilt? I don't know. I don't know what's driving it, but I, I think it's pretty obvious that she's got uh, an agenda here. Why she has one, I don't know. Okay, last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. But at the end of the day, this is about kids. This is about serving kids and including families and communities. I mean, what else is the point of a school? Right? That's the whole point of a school. Is that the point of a school? When Miss Lanzaletto said this, I got stuck on the phrase, what is the point of a public school? We don't seem to have any kind of unified vision. Maybe there was one back when they made that old film about public schools teaching us about democracy and how to live together. But we don't have a shared vision now. What we have is choice. You can choose your vision for a public school. You can go to the test score school like Success Academy or the racial justice school like BHS. There's no city policy that says every school needs to be integrated and equitable. It's up to us. If we want that, we can choose it. For families with the most power, the most choices, that means we get to choose. Do we want to play fair or not? At BHS, families were choosing equity. White, advantaged families. The parents I met at BHS, of all races, were pretty happy with the school. They seemed bought in. Meanwhile, the test scores at BHS have improved dramatically. There's still an achievement gap, but it seems to be closing. Black boys are no longer being disciplined at much higher rates than everyone else. And the kids seem happy. Okay, so overall, that sounds like a good a good ending, right? A good outcome. You get some good leadership. They don't let the white parents run over everybody else with their fundraising and their uh, aggressive tactics. That was part of episode one of the podcast. 
And next thing you know, there's some uh, some equity going on. The kids are doing better. The achievement gap is shrinking. Uh, there's a lot of great things going on there. And they still have white parents there. So what happened? Did The white parents were playing along. I think it's because there was strong leadership. I think the principal, sounds like, was doing a great job. I hope she is still doing a great job. But again, and one of the things that, that, that they miss in this particular episode, when she talks about, you know, that you have all these choices. You can go to this kind of school or that kind of school. Well, I live in an enormous school district here in North Carolina, and there are no choices. You don't have a choice of where you go. If you want to go somewhere other than your uh, uh, school that they assigned you to, and we have busing here and all kinds of stuff, uh, then you apply and you get in a line, and most people don't get to change schools. You don't have a choice. Maybe they do in New York. God bless you. That's that's great. They have choices. But most of this country does not have that kind of choice. So there's some things that, again, that I like about this podcast. I think it brings up some great points. It's fascinating to see how the struggles in this one particular school for literally 50 or 60 years and where white parents overplayed their hand and where leadership was weak and the school system and money's at play. So again, I think ultimately to reduce the whole thing down to just nice white parents that are overplaying their hand and the whole system bows down to them. That's not true in every school. It's not true in every part of the country. It's just not true. But it is an issue. So again, is it the New York Times? Is it the is it the season that we're in? So they knew. Listen, you come out in uh, July and August of 2020 with a podcast called Nice White Parents. You know it's going to get attention. And New York Times, like every other news organization and media group, needs attention in order to sell advertising in order to make money. So it's not completely altruistic. We all would do well to remember. So I hope you go check that out. Uh, nice White Parents is definitely worth the time. I've, I've listened to four episodes. They have the fifth one. So I'll make sure I listen to that when it comes out and see how they wrap it up. But again, I've got major problems with them reducing all the problems in the public school system, whether it's New York or around the country, to nice white parents who get too much privilege and, and abuse it. There's a whole lot more going on than that. All right. So there you go. Another episode of Who Is This SOB? I hope you'll come back. Actually, I'm going to do, uh, this was episode nine, episode 10. I'm going to interview a young white woman who teaches at a uh, majority minority school in the Philadelphia area. She's has a really tough time in that environment. So I'm going to have her listen to this uh, podcast, Nice White Parents, and we're going to talk about it. And she's in her 20s. So again, we're going to have a little bit of a vibe like I did with my son. By the way, if you didn't hear episode eight of Who Is This SOB, I did that with my our 25-year-old son who grew up obviously in a very conservative house, is not nearly as conservative as, as his parents. We've had problems with that and some real, real tough times, but we're doing much better now. And we did a, a pretty long hour and a half conversation Uh, about that, which I think most Americans are struggling with that in your own families, with friends, coworkers. So it was really healthy for my son and I to do it. And I hope that will be a blessing and a help to you as well. That's episode eight of Who Is This SOB? This is episode nine, obviously. Episode 10 will get out as soon as we can. That'll be an interview with a uh, inner city school teacher. And we'll see what happens there. Uh, go check us out, whoisthissob.com. You can check out the rest of the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And I uh, hope I'm not quite the SOB you expected me to be. And uh, I hope we can keep this conversation going. I think we all have a lot to learn. And I think as we learn and spend this time together, uh, we can do all our part to make the country a better place. Okay, thanks for your time. God bless you. And I'll talk to you again real soon. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward. Ever forward.